Good morning. I'm thankful uh, to the session and to Steve to have the privilege and the opportunity to preach our Advent series uh, for the next four weeks. This is the second year where I've been able to do this rather than preaching every once in a while to have the chance to put together four sermons in a row and to do so as an Advent is a real uh, blessing and a privilege for me. Uh, I've come to deeply love Advent, but it wasn't always so. I didn't grow up in churches that really talked about Advent and that celebrated it. Some of us perhaps find it to be a little foreign to our ears, to sound a little high church or something. But the idea behind Advent, of course, going back through the centuries to the ancient church, is that the good news that we celebrate at Christmas, so that 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 won't sneak up on us, we need to have a season to prepare our hearts for the arrival of our Savior. Of course, in our culture today, Christmas doesn't sneak up on us. The stores have had red and green stuff out since, you know, before before Halloween. But even so, and even more, the meaning of the holiday is in danger of being obscured for us. And so I pray that our celebration of Advent this year will provide a helpful corrective and focus for us during these weeks. On page 13 in the bulletin is an outline of the sermons that we'll be uh, exploring from Luke 1 and 2 this, this season. Our Advent theme this year is this. The incarnation of the King is the world's most unlikely story. The incarnation of the King is the world's most unlikely story. We'll focus on two things this season from this theme. First, that Christmas is about the incarnation of the king of the universe, that this baby born into a hostile world is not an ordinary baby, but he's the king who's promised to rule and reign forever and establish an unbreakable kingdom. Second, we'll learn that the whole story is the most unlikely tale. It's worthy, really, of mocking and ridicule if it weren't true. The unlikeliness of the event, the unlikeliness of the characters in the story, point us to the reality of the unlikeliness of our own redemption and the part that we have to respond to the news that we hear in this story. Our God is a God of the ordinary, and part of what's extraordinary about this story is the way that he uses the ordinary in amazing and powerful and surprising ways. So over the next few weeks, we'll consider some of the characters from Luke 1 and 2, uh, how God uses these unlikely and surprised ones in his plan for the world's true king to arrive in our history. Just a note of introduction as we begin on on Luke's gospel, because we'll be in Luke 1 and 2 over the next few weeks. Uh, Luke tells us in the first four verses of his book that he's writing for a purpose, So that this man, whose name is Theophilus, who is a new believer, who's probably a wealthy patron, helping to sponsor Luke in the writing of this work, will have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught about Jesus Christ. Luke is a responsible historian, and so he describes how he researched these amazing events. And particularly, we see evidence of that in these first two chapters. We get a very detailed description much more than we get from the other gospel writers about what's happening. And this morning, as we focus on Mary, the mother of Jesus, the world's most unlikely mother of a king, 
We'll see that Luke has a lot of details that only Mary could have given him. Scholars speculate that he interviewed Mary, that he talked to her about all of these things that happened as he was writing the gospel. So read with me. Uh, We'll be in Luke 1, uh, starting in verse 26. It's on page 723 if you're using the Pew Bible. There's also a sermon outline on page 7 in the bulletin. Hear the word of God. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. Please pray with me. Father, now as we come to your word, we ask that you would teach us all from it, that we would see what we can learn here in this passage about who you are, about who this baby is that you have sent, and about this woman that you used uh, for your purposes in bringing him into the world. We thank you that we can study, that we can learn together, that we can be encouraged by your words. We need your help to understand. We need your help to apply it to our lives, and so we ask you would meet with us this day, uh, during this time, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turning today to the subject of Mary, Jesus' mother, we come to a good bit of preconceived ideas, perhaps, about her and her place in church history. Few things divide Catholics and Protestants so strongly than our different convictions about Mary. As I was working on this sermon, as we were driving back, we, we visited my family and Aaron's family in the Midwest over Thanksgiving. We were driving back and driving back and driving back, you know. And... Uh, I was, I was thinking about the sermon, and I was asking Erin, my wife, about, about her experience with Mary. She grew up in a home where her dad is from a large, traditionally Catholic family. When Doran was born with his bright red hair, we were thinking of relatives on both sides of the family who had red hair, and Erin remembered that her grandmother's aunt, Sister Mary Valeria, uh, who was a nun, was red-haired, and everyone kind of forgot that because she was always wearing her her habit, but she was red-haired. So on Aaron's dad's side, uh, you have uh, her, you know, his great aunt was a nun. A number of Aaron's cousins spent some time studying for the priesthood. And on her mother's side, uh, her mother had converted to Catholicism to marry her dad. And then uh, when Aaron was young, became a believer through a friend um, and began to worship at the Methodist church. So she really has in her family both sides of the spectrum represented. So I was asking her, what, what, you know, what happened about Mary in your family? 
And the answer was nothing. The family's response was, we don't talk about Mary. Those conversations don't go well. A few years ago, Christianity Today had a cover story on the evangelical response to Mary, suggesting that while Catholics had perhaps overemphasized Mary, certainly Protestants, by and large, had ignored her and undervalued her role in the drama of God's redemptive history. She stands in a unique place as a yet an completely unlikely one through which God would be used would use to be involved in this story. Her text, of course, is the famous uh, Annunciation, the great announcement from God via his angel Gabriel to Mary. As uh, we've read it, let's look again at, at the first verses. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And the reader has previously met Gabriel. He appeared to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, a few months earlier. If you read both of these accounts together, you'll see a lot of interesting parallel ideas. Gabriel comes to a human, assures them of God's blessing, promises them the birth of a miraculous child. We know nothing about Mary before this event. Here we find that she is a young woman. She's specifically described as a virgin. She's engaged or betrothed or pledged to be married to Joseph, but not yet officially married. In the culture of that day, this kind of, of engagement or betrothal could last even up to a year. Woman could become betrothed as about 14 years or old or so. Uh, but betrothal, of course, was much more than what we think of when we think of engagement. It required a divorce to break this kind of betrothal. It was probably something of an arranged marriage, which the fathers would likely have been involved in some kind of negotiation of a, of a bride price and all of that. And since the fathers and the families would have been involved with this, this was something that was binding, this kind of engagement or betrothal. We don't really know how much Mary and Joseph would have known each other. Nazareth was a small town, so it seems like they might have been acquainted. We don't really know in the culture of that day how much time together betrothed the couples spent. Uh, but, you know, it probably was more of an arranged marriage than, uh, than kind of a love match or one where they picked one another. Specifically in these verses, Mary is described as a virgin. The doctrine of the virgin birth, of course, has been attacked for centuries by unbelievers. And even by those who would call themselves uh, followers of Christ have downplayed this miracle in an attempt to make the Christian faith more sort of believable to those on the outside. But the witness of Scripture here and elsewhere is really impossible for us to get around. This is a pillar of the church's belief and teaching. The accounts of Luke and Matthew are clear. There's no ambiguity in the language on this particular subject. In the early 20th century, the virgin birth was considered one of the five sort of fundamental beliefs that became something of a test for orthodoxy, dividing churches and denominations based upon the acceptance or rejection of this miracle as well as the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, and the bodily resurrection, and those other sorts of fundamental beliefs. And something that now we accept by faith, certain that God is powerful enough to do this miracle. 
we should notice, too, as we see the parallel accounts, that this miracle is greater than the miracle of the birth of John the Baptist, even as this child is greater than John. The angel's greeting itself is perplexing to Mary, verse 29. Gabriel calls her one who is highly favored, in verse 28. And again in verse 30, the angel says that Mary has found favor with God. It's an interesting idea, and we might ask, why? Why did this young woman find favor with God? Why is she favored by him more than others? Is she the godliest woman who's ever lived? Are the Catholics, you know, onto something about her exalted status among all women ever? Well, certainly Mary has a unique position in God's redemptive plan. The text doesn't really tell us why God chose her. The word that's translated as favor in this context is the ordinary New Testament word for grace. Mary has found grace. God has graced her with his visit from the angel. What's the nature of God's grace? It's never earned. It's always free. Mary's the recipient of God's grace, not the earner of it, and even less the dispenser of it, of God's grace to others. The focus is not on the character of Mary and her righteousness, but the focus really here is on the sovereign work of God, who has chosen her to be gracious to her, to bless her. And as we'll see, of course, this gracious calling on her life is not without cost. God's grace is free, and she is tremendously blessed. She recognizes this in the poem that she'll say to Elizabeth in a few verses. But this visit will change everything about Mary's life. And this calling that God places upon her will involve suffering and hardship. The angel also emphasizes that God is with her in verse 28. In a unique way, God is with her. In a different way than God has been with anyone else, I think we would say. She's been, God's enabled her to conceive. God's cared for her as the one who will bear the Messiah. But all of this, it's his kind initiative to her from the beginning, which will continue and sustain her through the coming years of uh, months and years of her life. Gabriel brings us some shocking, some amazing and surprising news, doesn't he? Indeed, Mary, this young woman, is going to be a mother, the most unlikely mother of the coming king. Verse 31. This is Gabriel speaking. You will be with child and give, him, and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Imagine this. It's big enough news that she's having a baby, but Gabriel gives her three different truths about this baby boy. Mary is instructed to name the baby Jesus, which is equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua, which means that God saves or God is salvation. The baby will be the fulfillment of the promise of God to save, to rescue his people. Second, Gabriel says that this baby will be great. It will be called the Son of the Most High. Well, John the Baptist, in verse 15 of chapter 1, is, uh, is called great before the Lord. This child will be great with no qualifiers. And when this idea of great is used by itself to describe someone in the Old Testament, it overwhelmingly most often refers 
to God. God is great. Period. Others may be great of some measure, but God alone is this kind of great. This will be a uniquely great child, one without parallel. The Son of the Most High. Referring, of course, Most High, referring to Yahweh, the God who has revealed Himself to His people in the Old Testament, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the Most High, is sending His Son to the earth. The third thing, third truth here, this baby is a king. He's great, David's greater son. He'll sit on David's throne. He'll reign over the house of Jacob, God's people. But unlike Jacob and David and Solomon and any of the other human uh, patriarchs and kings, this baby will establish an unending kingdom, a forever kingdom, different from any other kingdom that has ever been or ever will be. The Old Testament kingdom of Israel was pointing forward to this kind of true kingdom that has begun and that will one day be completed. Every knee will bow to this king, to this baby, who will rule forever. Put together, these three truths lay the groundwork for all that the church believes about this child. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Kings who rules over a forever kingdom in seed form here at the very beginning of the gospel, before he's even born. The angel is telling us who this child really is, preparing us for a high Christology, preparing us to see with real eyes who he is. Mary responds to all of this news with a question in verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. I don't think this is a question coming from doubt, but it's a very practical one. Mary is asking here, I I need a bit more information. How can this be? Zechariah asked a similar kind of question in, in verse 18. According to the angel, though, he asked from a place of unbelief. He received this sort of judgment that he couldn't speak until John was born because he was doubting. He, who was a priest, as he was in the temple, met an angel, promising a child to him and his wife in his old age. Mary, not a priest, just a young woman, not in the temple, worshiping, minding her own business, we don't know doing what, is promised a greater miracle as an angel just shows up. And as we would think about those two accounts together, I think we would see that Mary has a greater kind of faith than Zechariah does. And Mary's question is coming from a place of belief and yet a question, an honest question, one that needs a little bit more uh, information. And the angel seems happy to give this kind of assurance and additional information that, that Mary wants. Verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. 
There's an expression of the Trinity at work here in verse 35. The Holy Spirit is involved with the power of the Most High, God the Father, to make all of this happen, that the Son would be incarnated as a human, according to the angel's promise. God is the one who is making all of this happen according to His infinite power. He's the only one who can do this kind of creative miracle. And the miracle really isn't the virgin birth. The miracle is the virgin conception. The God who created everything from nothing, the God who created Adam from the dust, is the one who can create life in the womb, quite apart from ordinary means. This is the definition, really, of a true biblical miracle. As an additional proof and assurance, a sign graciously given, Gabriel mentions a similar miracle in the life of Mary's relative Elizabeth, who's well along in her pregnancy, even in her old age. Perhaps Mary knew this news already, but now she's given the whole story, right? That it wasn't just some kind of random event that allowed Elizabeth to conceive in her old age, but that God is the one directly behind it, for his purpose. And he can do exactly what he pleases. Nothing is impossible for God. There's a great theological truth here in the angel's lips, right? God does what he wants. He establishes the laws of nature. He upholds all things. He supersedes the ordinary, his normal ordering of things at times, according to his own will and his power, for his own purposes. He's the only one who can do that. And nothing is too difficult for him. This word here from the angel, I think, prepares Mary to go and visit Elizabeth, provided encouragement and strength to both women. Both were facing strange questions, of course, from their community, would have likely felt scared and alone. Mary doesn't you know, is facing this pregnancy probably for some of this time without Joseph knowing or without Joseph believing in her version of events. We can only imagine how those in her family or town might have reacted to this news once they become aware of it or how much it, it spreads through the community. It's kind of hard for us to know. Seems like perhaps part of the reason why she left for these three months to spend the time with Elizabeth was to have a chance to process the news, to share it with someone who understood what she was going through, who was going through something very similar, something unlikely, something amazing, something extraordinary of God's work in their lives. The story here concludes with Mary's response to all of this news in verse um, 38. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Her response is really commendable and amazing in its own right, isn't it? The last thing Mary would ever have expected in her whole life has just happened to her. She's going to be the mother of a king. The promised, the king, the promised Messiah king. Yet despite her confusion... And the unbelievable nature of these words and all of the things that she could have been going through her mind. Her response is to listen to the angel, to believe God's word, to submit herself to God's plan, and to stand ready 
for the things that God was bringing into her life. It's an amazing response to this news, isn't it? It's very simple. It's very humble. It's very willing. Ready to be used of God however God feels fit to use her. It's remarkable. What does the story mean for us today? What can we learn from it? Why is it here? How is this... You know, why would, would Luke have included this story for us to read many centuries later? I think there are three main things that we see from the text here. First, we learn about this king. The main point is to clearly identify this child, to understand his uniqueness. He's the reason for our Advent celebrations. The king is coming. The king has come. The king is coming again. He's the son of God who will save his people from their sins. That's the foundation of our hope for this season and for every season. The world needs to know that there's a king who humbled himself to take on our flesh, to invade our space, to redeem his people. Contemplate his greatness this season, this Advent season. As Advent begins today, you're not behind yet. As Advent begins today, think about how you can celebrate this Christ of this season each day. In the grace vine that we uh, sent out just a few days ago, there's a, da- a, s- a series of daily readings from the Old Testament, one each day for the month of, from December 1st to December 25th. It reminds us of the prophecies concerning this son, who he is, and why he's come. That's the main point. We, we have to see here that this is about the child, first and foremost. Second, of course, and related to that is this idea, the theological truth here is that God can do the impossible, that nothing is too hard for him. And as we think about the season of Advent, remember that as well, that God does extraordinary things on behalf of his people. Part of what makes the Christmas story so amazing is that the extraordinary Really, the unbelievable, the amazing and the surprising enters into the world of the ordinary. And that's the place where we live. We live in sort of ordinary world, ordinary ways, ordinary lives. Mary, as far as we can tell, is sort of an ordinary person. She wasn't raised to be the mother of a king. God sanctifies the ordinary for extraordinary things in his economy. No one is just ordinary to God. Have you thought of that? No one is just ordinary to him. There aren't ordinary moments in God's world. God sanctifies the ordinary for the extraordinary. God does the impossible. He creates something out of nothing. He surprises the world with the arrival of his son. The unlikeliest story is true. Something extraordinary has happened to very ordinary people. And that's something we can relate to, isn't it? Third, I think this text encourages us to consider Mary. She's the surprised recipient of God's amazing grace. She was favored. She was graced by God to serve in a unique way in his redemptive plan. And God's grace for her will be a a blessing of both joy and suffering 
of both trial and redemption as the mother of Jesus. Her role is special and is unique. The most impressive part, in some ways, is her response to the Word of God. The angel brings the craziest news, and she says, God, I'm willing to be your vessel. I'm willing to be your servant. May it be according to all that you've said. I'm the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. She says that with a kind of certainty that is remarkable and amazing, isn't it? What do we share with her? Are we not also the unlikeliest people to have received the free grace of God? The free grace of God that brings us salvation from sin, that transfers us from darkness and its kingdom to the kingdom of light. In different circumstances, but from the same God, you have been graced. You have been favored. God has said to each one of us who believe, you are highly favored. I've chosen you. I've sent my son, my only son, for you. And all who have received the amazing news of this king and who have believed it and have responded in faith are graced. We are the recipients of grace, like Mary, by the same God who is kind to all he has made for no good reason of our own, for his own purposes, out of his sheer goodness, out of his sheer love, because he wanted to. And like her, we also face the choice of how to respond to God's word. Even when it's not so unbelievable. I mean, even when it doesn't come to us from an angel. God shows us the miraculous in the world he's made. God shows us the miraculous in his word that he's given us. And he calls us to respond in faith and trust with the impossible in our lives and with all, with, also with the ordinary. And so as we think about this Advent season, where might God be calling you to trust Him more? Think about where God might be calling you to say, your will, not my will. I'm the Lord's servant. I'll do what you say. I'll do what you ask. I'll submit to your word. Think about your life. Are there ways that you have been avoiding what God would call you to? Are there ways that you have been neglecting His Word? God shows us the miraculous. God gives us His Word, calls us to respond and say, not your will but mine. Not my will but yours, sorry. I'm your servant. As we think about these things, about who is this child, as we think about God who does the impossible, as we think about responding in faith to the word of God given us, as we come now to the table, we prepare our hearts to respond to this meal that's set before us. We need this story again to remind us as we begin Advent that this baby is the king, that he's the king of, the, of an everlasting kingdom. We need this meal to nourish us, and to remind us that he's come and that he's brought grace to the unlikeliest people in the unlikeliest way by giving his life 
by giving up himself, by dying so that we could live. This is the good news of the table. It's the good news of Christmas. It's the message for us this morning. Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful this morning for your work in miraculous ways in history and in our history. For all who believe, we know what it means that you have done, some, have done a miracle, have changed our hearts, have, have given us eyes to see, and given us the gift of faith. We thank you for that this morning. We f- pray that you would sustain us and that you would help us this Advent season to say with Mary that we are your servants, that we are here to do your will, to say with Mary we believe. God, we're thankful for that gift that you've given to us. Jesus, we thank you for coming to our world. And we pray that you would would bless us now as we participate in this meal together and as we celebrate all that you have done in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.